We're in 1 Timothy 6, as the slide behind tells me. Good morning, good afternoon. Good afternoon, that's not the right time, I don't think, is it? No, it's not 20 past 1. 20 past 12, it's good afternoon, it's good to be here. We're going to be in 1 Timothy 6. I'm continuing to talk in the series that Dan has taken us through. Blessed hands dipped in with us for a bit. So last time Dan was talking about the love of money, and we find ourselves in 1 Timothy 6, 11 to verses 16. I'm going to read that, I'm going to pray, and then we're going to kick off, all right? So it says this, But you, man of God, flee from all this and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses. In the sight of God who gives life to everything, and of Jesus Christ, who while testifying before Pontius Pilate made the good confession, I charge you to keep this command without spot or blame until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which God will bring about in his own time. God, the blessed and only ruler, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone is immortal and who lives in an approachable light, whom no one has seen or can see, to him be honor and might forever. Amen. Let's pray, shall we? Father, I thank you for your word. Sharper than a two-edged sword, separating bone and marrow, gets right in there, Lord. And I pray this afternoon, as we look at this text, you'd get right in there, into our souls, into our lives. You'd speak powerfully and clearly about the things you'd have us change and have us do. And we'd get to know something more of you this morning as well. Come and reveal yourself through this passage, through this text. Come and show us more of you that we might be changed more into Jesus' likeness. Amen. Amen. So, man of God. This is how it starts off. It's the end of this letter that Paul, the apostle, has written to his son in the faith, Timothy. And he's saying, Timothy, this is the way that people should conduct themselves in the house of God. And he's given a series of instructions throughout this passage. And he's, tr- he's coming to the end of the letter He's coming with some final instructions, some final encouragements. But he starts off by saying this, Timothy, man of God. You're a man of God. This is not an accidental phrase that he uses. This is purposeful. He knows the history of the Old Testament that comes with this. And he's saying to Timothy, effectively, you're in a long line of amazing heroes of faith. You may not feel amazing, but I'm saying to you today, Timothy, you're a man of God. You're a man of God. And you are going to help me uncover who he was talking about when he's saying man of God. Because there are a few people in the Old Testament that were called a man of God. And this is, yes, it's quiz time. At the start, we're going to go straight away. Can I just say, 9.30, we're rubbish. <laughs> Apart from Neil Fletcher, no one had an answer. So you guys, I've got more faith in. I think we can do this. I'm looking for four key names. There's loads of people like, there's some, some prophets, some minor prophets that people never really heard of. have got called men of God and some unnamed prophets. But four key people in the Old Testament are called men of God, man of God. Does anyone know who they are? Sorry? Samuel? No. Moses, yes. Abraham, no. They were all men of God. Elijah, yeah. Elisha, yeah. David, wow, you guys were amazing. You just nailed off those big four. Well, that took a lot less time than I did this morning. I'll tell you that for a fact. That was 20 minutes of the message. 
going to be a quick one here today. There we have. So this is the, the long line of people that Timothy gets added to. Moses, David, Elijah, and Elisha. These guys did amazing things for God. Amazing things. And Timothy is now in that line. He's saying, to, uh, Paul's saying, Timothy, you're a man of God. That's who you are. That's exactly who you are. And not always a man of God. Well, the, kind of, the phrase means a couple, of, a couple of things. One of the things it means, it means you're owned by God. It means you're his man. You belong to him or you're his woman. So for these guys, God was taking ownership and saying, you're my man. You're a man of God. You're my man. You're my woman. You're the person I want to use. And primarily what they're used for is bringing messages, bringing the word of God into situations, speaking what God has to say. And we can see that is entirely true of what Timothy's trying to do in Ephesus. He's owned by God. He's God's man for Ephesus, and he's bringing a message. He's bringing direction. He's bringing clarity. The Ephesus church wasn't in a great place and Timothy's got a difficult job, and Paul knows he needs encouraging. But we can also say that those two things are true of us as well. We're owned by God. We belong to God. It was a, a few weeks ago now, but um, Tim Davis was talking about, I'm a beloved, and he is mine. We are owned by him. We're his. Beautifully bought at a great price. We're his. And also, it must be true to say that we've got messages to bring. We've got the truth of the gospel to bring into any and every situation we're in, whether we're at school, whether we're um, at home looking after kids, whether we're at work, whether we're tired, whatever situation we're in. We are those that are owned by him and have a message to bring. So it's not just Timothy that's called a man of God. I think I'm going to call you guys today men and women of God. That's the title I'd like to give you. Now, do you think Timothy felt like a man of God? Don't look down. Don't let people look down on you because you're young, Timothy. Fan into flame this gift within you, Timothy. I, I don't think, I've, we don't know, but I suspect he faltered a little bit. I suspect he had some nervousness. I suspect like you and I, we feel a little bit uncomfortable with that title, man of God. But that's what God does. That's how God treats his people. He gives us a status. He gives us an identity, and then we live that out. And that's exactly what Paul's doing here. So he's saying, you're a man of God, therefore do these things. And we'll look in those in more detail. In this passage we've seen, that's what he's going to say to them. But Peter, in, in his letters, he calls, it referring to the Old Testament, says, we're a royal priesthood, a holy nation. That's the status, the identity the church, is, church has. And we've not earned it. We've not exactly liked that. But that's who we are in Christ. And we work it out. He later says, be holy because God is holy. So we are holy and separate. We're God's people, but we work it out. We're men and women of God, but then we work it out. We're not trying to achieve the status of being a man or woman of God. We're working out of that identity, working out of that status. And it's the same when we're talking about being a child of God. What have we contributed to our adoption into God's family? Absolutely nothing, yet he calls us a child of God, and we live out of that goodness. We live it out, we walk with him, we boldly approach the throne room of God, not just because he's God, because he's our Father, so we can come in and know him. We don't earn it, it's a status or identity that God gives us that we then work out. This is what's happening in this passage with Timothy. So let me summarize it as followers of Christ, who we are is not defined by what we do or think or say, that's not our identity. That's how the world works. In the kingdom of God, it works differently. We are who God says we are. 
And that is our identity. That is our status, which means we're loved, adopted, saved, rescued, holy, and righteous, and all the other wonderful things that Christ has achieved for us. What we do or think or say, therefore, is still important, but secondary to our identity. As those already loved by God, we are called to work out that identity in the way we live. Our success or otherwise in doing that does not fundamentally change our identity. We're still in Christ. Do you see the way it works differently to the world? In the world, you have to earn your status. You have to earn your identity. There are steps to get there. There are things you have to do. In Christ, it's the opposite way around. We're given an identity and we work it out. And it's exactly what we're going to do today. That's our job. We're going to look at what it means for us, who God wants to call men and women of God. How do we work that out? How do we live out that status or that identity that God has given us? So, there are a few encouragements, a few instructions that Paul has for Timothy that we're going to look into. The first of which is this. Flee. He says, flee from all this. All this is referring to the passage before, which is essentially the love of money, which essentially is idolatry. Elsewhere, Paul says to Timothy, flee the evil desires of youth. Flee sin. So we've got two things. We've got sin and idolatry. They're the things we're meant to flee. Now, I don't know whether you understand what the word flee means, but I'm going to demonstrate that for you now. But I need first a volunteer. Is there anyone here who would like to be the embodiment and epitome of sin? Alistair Jewardham? <laughs> Who was that volunteering? It was an Evans, was it? <laughs> no? Any volunteers? Okay, okay, I shall be the embodiment of sin then, because I'm comfortable in my position in Christ and I can do that. I need someone who can flee. Does anyone know how to flee? I'm going to pick on someone. Do you know how to flee? Do you want to come and help me? <laughs> no. Anyone else? I'm going to pick on someone. I'm going to pick on um, Andy. Come on. Right, I am sin, I'm idolatry. And I suggest you come on this side. It might give you a, it's better running. That's a better running space. So Andy is going to flee from sin. On your marks, get set, flee. <laughs> Woo! He's fled from sin. He's, he's really fled. He's gone, he's out of the building. <laughs> come back, Andy, all is forgiven. No, I'm the sin. You've not sinned. He's out of the building. He's actually out of the building. Right, someone lock the doors. That'll serve him, right? <laughs> He's coming back in. Andy has wonderfully demonstrated what Paul is saying here. He's saying, flee sin. Just stay there for a second, mate. I still need you. Stay there. Now, let me suggest that perhaps attitude to sin is not exactly like that all the time. Because maybe, maybe we crawl towards sin. Not crawling. Okay, walk slowly towards sin. Maybe we just look at it Lovingly. <laughs> Wait, it gets, it gets better. Maybe we flirt with sin. <laughs> Come on. You didn't want to be sin, so you've got to be this one. Wow. That's how you flirt. That's, maybe, we <laughs> maybe we dance with sin. But that's not what we're called to do. We're called to flee. You don't have to do it again. It's fine. Please take a seat. Thank you very much, Andy. It's true, though, isn't it? We sometimes, we're creeping towards sin, but Paul is saying here, flee all this. 
flee the sinful desires of youth, we should be traveling in the opposite direction of sin. That's the first instruction for those who want to live out their man of God status. Second one is pursue. If flee is the negative, move away from, we now have a positive to pursue, to go after. Another quiz. Anyone know who this man is? You probably need to be over 40, probably over 50. Anyone know? Only one person knew this morning. No, they didn't actually. No one knew who it was. Duncan Norvell, a lesser-known 1980s comedian who had a very, very famous catchphrase. Charity already knows what it is. I've chatted to him about it. Anyone know what the catchphrase was? Andy Coney this morning. It's related to pursue, as a hint. That's it, Catherine. Yes. Cheers, me. Cheers, me. He used to this. <laughs> it was just a little bit camp. I had to affect the campness because I'm not camp. And so, cheers, me. Cheers, me. So he'd get people to chase after him. It was apparently funny. Um, <laughs> but the point was, he wanted to be caught. So he'd run and people would catch him. He'd go, oh, it's lovely. Um, or if you don't relate, obviously that's not hit the spot in terms of where people are at. Maybe you understand this example. So um, I have uh, four daughters, a little one here who's two, and she likes being chased. She likes being chased. Who likes being chased here? Who likes being chased? Josiah likes being chased. Kezia likes being chased. And often kids want to be chased to be caught. Now, I'm happy to chase someone now if you want. Anyone want to be chased? There's a promise of a tickle at the end. <laughs> no? No. Okay, well, you get the idea. <laughs> I'll chase you later, Michael. All right. Um, the point is this. They want to be caught. And the word pursue here, it, in the original language, it has that sense of going after something to get it and capture it. It's not elusive. It's not beyond reach. There's pursuing to take hold of. And so when Paul says pursue, he's not saying look at from a distance, gaze at the unreachable. He's saying these things are within grasp. Pursue righteousness, living right ways. Pursue godliness, having a right attitude. Pursue faith, believing God, pursuing love, endurance and gentleness. These are the things that God would have us go after and pursue. It's an active word. There's energy that goes into it. Pursuit means running. It means effort. And these are the things we are to put effort into gaining. But they are, although they're not elusive, they are moving targets. Because in every situation, at different times of life, they mean different things. It will mean different things to be righteous at school. It will mean different things to be righteous at work. It will mean different things to be righteous at home. It changes. It's It's difficult. But the attitude is to be the same. It's to pursue to pursue and take hold of those things that God has for us. What do we have next? Verse 12, fight the good fight of the faith. Again, I need a volunteer, preferably under the age of five, to come and fight me. <laughs> come on there, Louise. You come and fight me then. You are very brave. Right, let's have a fight then. Oh! Ah! Oh! Oh! You win, you win. Go sit down. Thank you, you win. You're the winner. Has she been in training for that today? She's got older brothers, good point. <laughs> Got to stand your own. 
Eloise just fought a good fight. I did not. Fighting is to personify and be our attitude to our walk with God if we are to be men and women of God. This is just not a one-off statement that Paul makes. In Hebrews 12, it says, We're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses. Let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance. The race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. The word race there is the same word as fight in our passage today. And that word has a sense of competition with an element of danger. So we're to fight the good fight, the good competition. There's some danger involved. You see, if you haven't got an attitude of fighting, you're not going to defeat that danger. You're going to get caught unawares. There are going to be things that catch you out. And so Paul is saying to Timothy, you've got to be a fighter. You have got to be a fighter when it comes to your faith. You've got to have an aggressive attitude. And Paul has even more to say about fighting talk. So he says in 1 Corinthians 9, this is amazing stuff. Therefore, I do not run like someone running aimlessly. I do not fight like a boxer beating the air. No, I strike a blow to my body and make it my slave so that after I've preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. This concept, this idea of fighting within the realms of faith is something Paul refers to regularly. And here he's saying for himself, he's not an aimless runner. When the 100 meters Olympic championship happens, you don't get people taking selfies of themselves halfway through the race. Or they don't run into the middle of the pitch. They're focused on the race. They're focused on the track. They're focused in going the right direction. In that sense, they're fighters. And Paul, the literal translation of I strike a blow to my body is um, I pummel my body. It's like a continual hitting of himself to make his body a slave. And he's, it's a metaphor. It's a, an example. It's not exactly what he does. But he's saying, in my walk with God... I'm going to do all I can to live the best way for him. I'm going to be so aggressive. I'm going to be a fighter and make sure I live the right way for God. That's my question at this point in time. Are you a fighter? Are you fighting? Would that word be the word you could describe your walk with God? Fighting the fight of the faith. I want to leave that with you as a challenge. We'll come back to that at the end. But for me, I was challenged and struck by this. Man of God, fight the good fight of the faith. Be a fighter for Jesus. Don't relax. Don't chill. We've heard it here before in terms of an illustration, but we're not called, we're not on a cruise ship enjoying ourselves, sunning ourselves by the pool. We're on a warship. We're in a battle. Therefore, we have a mindset ready for battle, and we're warriors and fighters in that battle as well. That's what God's calling us to. Number four, take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. It's a bit of a funny phrase, this one. Take hold of the eternal life. I thought we had eternal life. The phrase means to get in line with the eternal life that is yours. It means to bring yourself in line with the trajectory that is yours in Christ Jesus. There's that sense in which God's promised something and there's a track to it and we need to pull ourselves in line with that track. Does that make sense? So there's an eternity for us 
which means our choices are based on that rather than on this world. So last week, two weeks ago, Dan was talking about the love of money. And he was talking about we invest our money for heaven, not for earth. And the principle is true more widely that we invest in heaven rather than earth in terms of our decisions and choices and the way we live. Our focus is eternal. We're taking hold of that eternal life which is ours in Christ Jesus. That's what we're doing. Another instruction for those who are working out their identity as men and women of God. Obviously, these are all very important. But Paul comes up at the end with another one and says, Keep this command without spot or blame until the appearing of our Lord Jesus. Keep this command. What's he talking about? Well, some commentators say command is love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, spirit, and love your neighbor as yourself. That's the greatest commandment. That's what he's talking about. But we could easily say he's talking about the command that he's already given out just previously. And you could say the two are actually related. They're similar. But this is a thing that I want us to understand. Paul is saying... Keep these commands without spot or blame until Jesus comes back again. So Timothy, until the day you die or until Jesus comes back, I want you to flee, pursue, fight, and take hold. I want you to do all these things. And I, I don't want you to be casual about it. I don't want you to take, use them as take it or leave it. I don't want you to think these are optional. I don't want you to think I'll have a go. I want you to keep them without spot or blemish. I want you to keep them without spot or blemish. For those in Christ who are men and women of God, this is the provocation and challenge of God for us today. Sounds like hard work, doesn't it? Sounds a bit legalistic, doesn't it? Is it? This is what Paul has for us. Have I just turned it off? I have, no. Let's see what Jesus had to say about following commands, shall we? If you love me, keep my commands. That's one of three I could choose in those four or five verses around that section. Love of Jesus is expressed in this way, obedience, following the commands. Sounds like Jesus is on board with what Paul was saying as well. What else did Jesus say? If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love just as I have kept my Father's commands remain in his love. I've told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. Oh, a little twist here. A little something different. Jesus is saying, if we love him, we obey his commands. If we obey his commands, our joy will be complete. Why is that? Because living God's way is the most joyful thing. Doing what God would have us do would bring us the most satisfaction and the most joy. And that's what Paul is saying to Timothy. I know what Jesus taught. I know what's good for you. I know the best thing for you. And it's keeping these commandments without spot or blemish. So, it's all about our effort, yes? Just us working very hard to keep all the commands and then feeling bad when we don't. No? Yes? Well, Philippians 2 has a little bit of help. My dear friends, as you've always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. That sounds familiar. Keeping those commands. Working out our salvation. For... It is God who works in you to will and act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Oh, there's a partnership. Oh, there's some help. Oh, this is not just my bag. God's involved. God's helping me. God's part of this. What else? 
Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Do you notice those words are similar and familiar for our passage today? Right? Flee from all this and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. The context of that passage is being in the Spirit and the Spirit of God producing these fruits in us. And Paul's saying pursue them as well. Also, it's a partnership. We're working with God. He's doing that with us. What else? What does Jesus say? I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. So we've got to remain connected to Jesus and he will produce fruit in us. Fruit of the Spirit. Fruits in the lost saved. So there's a partnership here. There's a togetherness, but there's a danger that we end up on either one end of the scale or the other end of the scale. Either we are trying so hard with so much effort we burn ourselves out, or we think discipleship is something that is done to us. I've chosen to follow Jesus, and now I'll be magically transformed into him. It's both, isn't it? We kind of know that, but I want us to get hold of it. Just, maybe you want to just personally reflect, whereabouts on the scale are you? Are you someone who just drifts through your Christian life hoping God will make things better. God will make you more righteous. God will produce these things in you, which he will. Or are you someone who works so hard with so much energy and so much effort you feel wasted and burned out and disappointed all the time? There's a healthy middle ground where we are pursuing and taking hold and fighting, but at the same time we know it's God who is at work in us, producing fruit, changing us into the likeness of Christ. That's what he does. So, it's still challenging, isn't it? It's still difficult. These instructions still seem like they're difficult to do. So we need to ask this question, why? What's our motivation? Why would we get involved in this? Why would we take them on board? Why are we going to listen this morning to the word of God and do something about it? What are the whys for us? Paul has a few hints in this passage for us. Because of Jesus' example. So he says to Timothy, take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses. And he goes on to say, in the sight of God, who gives life to everything of Christ Jesus, who while testifying before Pontius Pilate, made the good confession. Look, Timothy, you made a good confession about your belief in Christ. And Jesus made a good confession before Pontius Pilate. You're doing the same things that Jesus was doing. Stick with it. Jesus said, I obeyed my Father's command, so you obey my commands. He was true to the Father's will. We need to be true to what Jesus asks of us. Jesus is our forerunner. He's gone before us. He's shown us the way. He's our example, and we do want to live like him. He is our example. But, to nick a phrase from Noriel, another reason is because he's worth it. Because he is worth it. God, the blessed and only ruler, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone is immortal and lives in an approachable light whom no one has seen or can see. This is a tangent in Paul's text. This is an aside. He didn't mean to go there. He mentions the name of Jesus and suddenly worship comes out. He's met with the risen Christ. He's met with God. He knows what he's like, and he's absolutely fascinated and obsessed with him. So when he's writing a letter of instruction to Timothy, and he mentions the name of Jesus, he can't help, help but worship fall out of him. 
Is that the same for you? Is that the same for me? Does the name of Jesus lead me on a worshipful tangent? Or is it another name? I've got used to that name now. For Paul, it's the name above all names. For Paul, it's the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. And he can't help but worship. And he says here, no one has seen or can see God. In Isaiah 6, Isaiah has a vision of the throne of God and, and meets God in this vision. And he says, woe to me, I'm a man of unclean lips. He's offended by his sin. And God restores him. He atones for him. And then God has this question, who will go? Who can we send? And Isaiah does not suddenly go, let me just see if I, my diary is busy. Have I got anything on? Let me see, oh, can I be bothered? Is he, is he worth it? Isaiah's response, because he's seeing God, is this. Here I am, send me. I've seen God. I've seen him in his mightiness. I've seen his awe and wonder and his beauty. If he wants me to do something, I'm going to do it. I'm going to go straight away. There's no question in his mind because he knows God is worth it. And if there's a question in your mind about whether it's worth bothering these commands today, let me just gently and subtly suggest to you, have you got a big enough vision of who God is? Do you really understand how beautiful Jesus is? Have you got hold of what Jesus has done at the cross for you? Have you got hold of the majesty of Christ. John, in Revelation, and he has a vision of the risen Christ, and he says, I fell on my knees as if dead. He sees Jesus and almost dies. We need to have a greater, bigger, larger, more magnificent, more beautiful view of God than we have ever had before if we're going to live more effectively for him. Finally, answering the why question, we want to honor God. We want to honor him. Paul finishes this section saying, to him be honor and might forever. And honor in our culture, the word doesn't mean quite as much as it would have done in a shame and honor culture. So the opposite of honor would be shame. And Paul knows the way he lives his life affects how people view God. Paul knows the way that Timothy lives his life affects the way that people view God. I know the way that I live my life affects the way people view God. And I don't know about you, but I want to be someone who honors him in the way that I live. And I see here in Scripture an encouragement of how to do that. And I want to be someone who honors him. I want you guys to be someone who honors him as well. So, men and women of God sitting here this afternoon. That's our identity. That's who God's called us to be. But there is much for us to do. There are commands to flee and pursue and take hold and keep the commandments. But we need to get it in the right order. If we've not seen Jesus, if we've not seen how wonderful God is, these will feel burdensome. These will feel challenging. These will feel hard work. If we've really, truly seen God for who he is, these things we willingly pursue. We willingly flee sin. We willingly pursue righteousness. We willingly take hold of the eternal life that is ours in Christ Jesus because we've met him and our lives have been changed by him and we know he's completely worth everything we can give to him. Amen? Well, I'm going to pray for us and they're going to respond initially by singing then we'll see what else what God wants to do amongst us.